0: Well, I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I want you to turn to this portion of Scripture because, of course, it is the foundation of our message today and of this subject in our series, Living in the Light of Christ's Return. Our subject is Order in the Church, and I want to speak to you about one of the essential parts of church life. I'm very much aware that people have certain expectations when they come to church on a Sunday morning that perhaps they expect to hear a more evangelistic type of sermon because usually churches reserve Sunday morning for that type of preaching. But you've been around me for a long, long time now, and you know that uh, since we preach through the Word of God chapter by chapter and verse by verse, I mean, most of the time that's the way that we're preaching that it doesn't always lend itself, the passage that you might be in may not always lend itself to an evangelistic type of sermon. But always, when we preach the Word of God, we, we do want to bring it back to the central character of the Scriptures, never forgetting this is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about His glory. We exist as God's people because of Jesus Christ. If not for him, we are on our way to hell. We die without without uh, any hope whatsoever. We must have Christ. That's why we sing about him. That's why we try to exalt him in everything we do. So even in a sermon like we preach today, we are to find Christ. Well, this is an unusual subject for a Sunday morning, but it is, as I said, an essential part of church life and it's essential because the direction of the church should be this is the direction the church should be headed uh, concerning the holiness of God's people as we wait on the Lord to return. This holiness is what we must concern ourselves with. Now in first John, John wrote that we are to live so as not to be ashamed when Christ returns. And his meaning is that Christ would come back and he would not find us thinking the way that we used to think and living the way that we used to live. But we are new creatures in Christ. We have a different mind. God saved us out of our sins. We're new people with new hearts. The Lord separated us from what we were before. He saved us to work for him, to witness for him, to be examples of him, to model our lives After his image, as he was holy in every thought and activity, so we must strive to be like him. And this is the only way that we will be able to influence the world for Christ, and that is to be like him. We can only influence people in the right way if we live according to the word of God, with the consistency and the holiness that exemplifies the life of Christ. And we're to do this not only as individuals... Not just as individuals, as you're out every day in your workplaces or wherever you may be, but collectively, as the Lord Jesus Christ. This church is to be modeled after him. And for this reason, we must guard the church. It is the body of Jesus Christ, and so we must guard the church. We must make sure that the membership is godly, that it is holy, that it's living for Christ so that the light of the gospel is not hidden beneath a barrage of bad behavior, now, if you look at this text, I said it is foundational. It, it supplies for us the premise of our study, and it will take us into other parts of the New Testament to see the consistency of what the Bible teaches and how we are to maintain godly order and discipline. So if you look uh, beginning in verse number. Six of Second Thessalonians chapter three. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now, them that are such, we command and exhort you by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. um, well, in the last message, though, we did read these same scriptures, and I gave you the background, uh, the reason that Paul wrote about this problem and the reason that the church needed to discipline some of its members. Now, I don't want to go back through all of that information, rehearse all of that once again, except to say that the point in this passage is about people who were confused about the timing of the coming of Christ. There were some who thought that his return was soon enough that they didn't need to work. And so they quit their jobs. They decided they would wait on the Lord to return. Uh, They, I suppose that they wanted to relieve themselves, have a little bit of vacation time, get away from the labors, maybe a permanent vacation because, of course, there is no need to work if the Lord would be there in only a few days or weeks. Well, of course they were wrong. We know that they were wrong because the Lord hasn't yet come back. But they were also wrong about the value of work. And I think we covered that last week, so we won't go into that again. They were wrong about Christ's return. Christ didn't return. And so here they find themselves without jobs and they're scrambling to find a way to eat. But instead, of going back to work, which is the obvious thing to do. They depended upon the good graces of others to feed them and shelter and clothe them. And then they started going from house to house, and eventually in their idleness they became busybodies and troublemakers. That's the immediate context of what we've just read. But as you know, when Paul writes letters to churches in the New Testament, that there are lessons embedded in them for all churches and they help us to learn what to do in similar circumstances, what modern churches are to do. Now, we just read in First John a few minutes ago, or, or in Romans I think it was, that that things that are written before... Things like we read in the scriptures are written for our admonition. So we understand what we are supposed to do now. And so we take the principles that are set forth here and we use them in the church today. So we're learning here how we are to discipline people in the church. How do we maintain order? What do we do when sin infiltrates the lives of members of our church? Now, in verse number 6, he wrote, Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition you received from us. Now, there are three brief lessons in this verse that need to be expanded. First, there is a way to live that is orderly, not disorderly. Then, secondly, the instructions for living and orderly life are found in the traditions that are taught by the apostles. And these traditions also include the teachings of New Testament prophets, the teachings of Christ, and those things that are revealed by the Holy Spirit to all the authors of the New Testament. And then the third lesson that's taught here concerns us most at the present time, and that is the command... To withdraw from those who are not conformed to the standard of church conduct that is found in the scriptures. Now in the last message, this is what I said that we need to learn in the modern age of the church. That first lesson that we need to learn is the command for conformity. The command for conformity in a world that's always telling us to be individualistic and that what we want is the most important, that we should stand up for our rights, that we are to do things our own way, we decide our own destiny, we are to do what we think is true for us, no matter how that affects others. And with that mindset, people reject the Bible's teaching of conformity. The Bible does not instruct in ways of individualism. It teaches what all people must do, what we all need to do. And it teaches, most importantly, what the church needs to do and how we can live in conformity, in community, in uniformity and to be united in the faith and live in compliance to the principles of God's Word. Now, the result of that is that we will not be starkly different from each other, but rather we will be like each other. As we're all conformed to the image of Christ, we will in turn be like each other in our goals, our thoughts, our purposes, and especially in our service to the Savior. Now, Paul strictly commands in this passage that those who are out of order, those who do not conform, and those who are not alike and united in the determination to be holy and to follow Christ They're to be put out of the church. There is no room for sin in the church. There is no room for anyone to deny the authority of the church and not to walk in the instructions for God's people, for New Testament churches in the Word of God. So first, among all of us, there has to be this agreement to conformity. We must be a unified body. And there is no reason, there isn't any excuse for anyone not to conform because conformity is the way of Christ. This is His church. This church is His church. And we all must be conformed to Him. Now, if you are a member of Berean, your agreement when you became a member is that you would conform to the Bible's standard of Christian living. And so when you hear me preach against sin, when we talk about the evil that's going on in the world today and, and so many different attitudes that people have about what's right for people to believe and it doesn't match the Word of God, well, we're going to preach against that. We'll stand against that because we can't be conformed to Christ unless we take on the morality and the directions and the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ and live strictly by those. And so as members of the Berean Baptist Church and coming into the body of Christ, we all consent to this. We all come together in agreement. This is the way that we will live. Now, what I want to talk to you about today is this process of discipline, not just today, but as we go on What does that mean, and how does that affect our church life? What must we do to be a complete body that is conformed to Christ's image? And then, how are we to deal with offenders, those who decide, well, that's just not the way that I'm going to live? So, we're going to talk about, secondly today, the discipline of the disorderly. The discipline of the disorderly. What is the issue... When we speak of discipline. Now last week I told you discipline is not at all about punishment. Discipline does not equal punishment. But rather discipline is about sin and about its holiness or its opposite which is holiness. God's people are called to holiness. And God expects me and all preachers of his word to preach about holiness. That, that ought to be one of our main subjects to preach about the holiness of God's people. And this is because the Lord is seeking a pure church. And that's because the Lord Himself is pure and holy. And if we're afraid to speak out about sin, to call sin, sin, then we'll never be a holy church. Now, I don't think there is any of you who wouldn't agree that God is or would say, you, you, would, you would not agree that God is unconcerned about sin. None, none of us is going to think a lot like that if we are true believers in Christ, that God is just unconcerned about sin. I mean, we just said a few minutes ago that Christ came into the world to die for our sin. So how could we say that God doesn't care about sin? And if he cares about sin, then we can't say that after you become a Christian, that suddenly God becomes unconcerned about sin. Now that you're a believer, well, we don't need to worry about sin anymore. Well, I don't think that we would agree that would be the case either. Paul said that as believers, when when we become believers, that we die to sin... That sin has no more dominion over us. That Christians ought to abandon sin, turn from it, give it up, and not go back to it. And he says, how are you that are dead to sin? How can you live any longer in ways that would oppose God? Now, teaching about sin and holiness is God's expectation for his church. And we find this consistently throughout the New Testament epistles. The rest of the New Testament, once you get beyond the Gospels that tell us about the life of Christ, once you get beyond those, then all the rest of it is the development of the expand, expansion of Jesus' teachings. And church discipline is certainly taught in many places of Scripture, as we'll see. God wants a holy church. He expects us to preach it and to enforce it, and we must because this is the key to purifying the church. So what I can't do is to stand here and preach to you about sanctification, about holiness. Uh, I can't stand here and rant about this subject and insist upon it and plead for it. And then have everybody walk out of the church after the service and go right back to what you were doing before. You It does me no good at all if people act as if preaching of the Word of God does not matter. And so when we hear the Word of God taught and preached and sin is mentioned, we need to be in immediate examination of our lives and see if we fall into that category. And what are we going to do about it if we do? So we can't preach the importance of holiness unless I can be assured, and you're assuring your own hearts, that, What we hear from the Word of God, we will do. Now, Paul was adamant about the enforcement of discipline. We see this especially in the Corinthian church. Now, the church at Corinth had many problems. One of the chief ones was immorality. And in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul identified a sin in the church, a sin that was tolerated and nothing was done about it. And he insisted... That something must be done about it. Now, he was an apostle of the church. He was acting under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And he commanded the church to do something about sin. Now, you read First Corinthians chapter 5. And you'll find there that he identifies the sin particularly. And he says, you've got to get rid of this. Now, the same thing is true here in our text in Second Thessalonians. There is a response That must be made when sin is discovered. There is an action to take when sin brings a reproach upon the name of Christ and upon his church. Now, as I speak on this subject, some may get the impression that what the church is in favor of is kicking everybody out. Let's just investigate everyone. Let's inspect everybody with the object that we're going to find out your sin... Eventually, we're going to find it out, and then we're going to get rid of you. Well, if that was our goal, we would have hardly anybody here. Um, For some, it would be a very short investigation, because all we'd need to do is visit your social media, and probably we would get rid of you immediately. But our goal is not to get rid of people. As I said, it's not to punish people. It's to show how everyone who's a member of the church can have the best of God's blessings in their lives and to live lives of fellowship with the Lord and to walk in his footsteps. That's where Christians should be. And if that's not what we want from our church, then why are we here? we If we're not in agreement with getting sin out of our lives, then there's a serious question about whether we really know the Lord. Now, we're going to talk about the... Treatment of offending brothers and sisters. But I just want you to know that God is serious about this subject. And there are churches that are in shambles because they aren't serious about it. They're unholy. They're not examples for the cause of Christ. The people have not been taught to live holy lives and to rid the church of sin. Now, perhaps the ultimate in-your-face passage on the identification of sin and the enforcement of discipline and the effect that it has on the church is found in the case of two offenders in Acts chapter 5. Now, I'd like you to turn there, if you would, please, as we'll read this amazing, frightening passage about sin in the early days of the Jerusalem church. Some of you already know what we're going to talk about, Acts chapter 5. And we'll look here at verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now let let me explain here just for a minute what's going on. The church in Jerusalem was growing rapidly. Uh, you read the first few chapters of the book of Acts, you'll find not just rapidly, but thousands of people were coming to Christ, were being converted. And in that time and in that society, committing to Christ and living as a Christian wasn't easy. The Jews and the Romans, which was basically everybody, hated Christians. And so when a person received Christ, it often led to their treatment as outcasts, being ostracized, losing jobs. They were put out of the synagogues. Those that were Jews were treated as dead people to their relatives. They just wouldn't have anything to do with them any longer. The Jerusalem church had many converts and because of this, they were cast out of society. Many of them were without resources. And so for everybody to be helped, some decided that they would sell their property. They would pool all their resources, and they would bring the proceeds and give these to the church, and then the church would take the money from that and buy food and clothing for those that were in need. Now, you can read the end of chapter 4 to learn a little bit more about that. So what we're talking about here are not people like the had the problem in Thessalonica. You remember in Thessalonica we've discussed how there were many that would not work. They weren't willing to go to work, and that caused a problem in the church. Well, these are not people that would not work. These were people that could not work because they were thrown out of their jobs, and so they wanted to live for Christ. They wanted to be consistent in their lives for Christ, so they couldn't stay in their workplaces. They were thrown out. And so what the church decided to do and what they rightfully decided to do because of love for each other, that they would gather to themselves all that were in need and help them. Well, Ananias and Sapphira were two members of the church that agreed they would sell their property and give all the proceeds to the church. But there was a problem with this. They were hypocrites. They said that they gave all, but they didn't give all, husband and wife, conspired to tell a lie. Verse number 3 says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While's it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Now Peter said, Ananias, there there is no requirement for you to sell your land. The church is not telling you that you must sell your property and give the money to the church. And then he said, if you do, there is no requirement that you must give it all. You can keep part of the money if you want. You can give 50%, 75%, give less than that. No one has insisted that you give it all. But the problem is that they had vowed to the Lord that they would give it all, and they pretended that they had, and they tried to look big, like they're the great philanthropist, and they're saying, look at what we gave, look at the example we are, look at this huge sacrifice. We have given so much to the Lord. And they were proud and boastful of it. They were deceitful, they didn't give all. They pretended, and they represented that they had. They were selfish, and what they wanted was recognition, and they lied about it. But the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter what they did. Verse number 5. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. It was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. This is what you call serious church discipline. There's no playing around with this one. Uh, God struck them dead. Now, the people got the picture. They understood. They, they saw with vivid reality that God does not like sin in his church. And the purpose of this discipline was, as we see here, to strike fear in the hearts of people because of sin. Now some of you might think. Why would you mention this on a Sunday morning? Why would you do this now? Don't you know that we have visitors. And this will drive people away from the church. Why do you talk like this when there's a church right down the street. And they're talking about fellowship with everybody and anybody. And they, they're, they're, they're having parties. They're having a love in down the street. Well, I I preach this because I want everyone to know that we are a church that is serious about what we preach. We're not playing church. It's our job to preach the gospel so that people can hear and believe the message of Jesus Christ. And we are serious that when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's heart, that he changes them, and there's evidence of that work of the Holy Spirit. If that hasn't happened, then we haven't accomplished the purpose of what God wants us to do here. Uh, People aren't being saved if there isn't a change in people. So if we tolerate sin and we don't live what we preach, if we don't enforce the standard of righteous living that we find in the Scriptures, then the cause of Christ is lost. Dr. John Dagg, an old 19th century Baptist theologian, said, when discipline leaves a church... Christ goes with it. Does church discipline drive people away? Well, I'm sure there were some in Jerusalem that said, don't join that church. Those people are crazy. You could die if you joined that church. But who would be the ones that would say it? Well, they would be false professors, people that didn't intend to to give up any sin. and And... Those those people, I mean, are are those the ones that we want in the church? Do we want people in the church who won't give up sin? Is that what God wants in his church? Does he want a church that's filled up with people that are unconcerned about sin and holiness? We must keep remembering this. Christ died to put away sin. So do we want a church filled up with unregenerate people that love sin more than they love Christ? And this is the real problem why people don't come to Christ. They love their sin. They love to do what they do and don't care about consequences. They love sin more than they love Christ. But this question still remains. Does church discipline drive people away? The answer is no. I'm I'm sure that it made some people who wanted to join the Jerusalem Baptist Church to think long and hard before becoming members. Only the saved and committed would want to become members of the church. Church discipline does not drive away those who want to serve Christ with a humble spirit and surrender all to the lordship of Christ. Now verse 11 says that great fear came upon all the church. So you can mark this down, that people thought twice about their sins, whether they were hidden sins or open sins. Otherwise, they thought twice about sin. But then just look a few verses down your page at verse number 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, both men and women... And this tells me that when we get serious about preaching about sin, about God's Word, and enforcing the Word, that God will bless His church. That God will purge the church, enabling it to be a glorious church. And that He will grow His church with true believers. False ones don't stick around for discipline. But the true ones recognize and admit their sins and they come back for fellowship. Now, what we've read here in Acts chapter 5 is a case of God acting and setting an example for what we must do. I'm not talking about killing people. He doesn't want us to kill members of the church. Sometimes I would like to, but he doesn't give me that authority. But sometimes this is what God will do. He will miraculously purge the church like he does in Acts 5. And we see the same thing happen in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There it says that, Some of the people in the church got sick and some of them died. And it's because they'd made a mockery of the Lord's Supper. So sometimes God may work miraculously with discipline. He may still work that way today. But the ordinary way that church discipline is affected is through the activities of the membership as we enforce the righteous standards of God. That's how it's normally done. Now, returning to this text, we see that discipline is a biblical concept. We find it repeatedly in the scriptures. And if the church ignores this, then we ignore it to our peril. We are to do all the Lord commands. You can't ignore this any more than you could ignore any other of God's ordained activities for the church. In fact, this, this part must be at work because God is not truly at work in an unholy church. Now, many churches make it their policy to draw in people by tolerating sin. We won't preach about it. We won't say anything about what you do. We just want you here. We, we just want you to come. We want you to enjoy yourself. And the church gets filled up with unconverted people. Now, I, I still have stuck in my mind this example. It goes back a long way. And I don't know how many times that I've used this in preaching, but I can't get rid of it because it stands out so much about what churches do. And this is about a church in Santa Rosa that you would be familiar with if I called their name. And this church was had some people in it that were interviewed by the press Democrat. This is a church that was growing rapidly, and people were interested what's going on over in that church. Well, after attending this church there was someone who who gave part this part of this interview and the comments stuck out to me. This was a teenage girl, college age girl that attended and she said, I like this church because it's not too religious. And uh I, I wondered about that all this time. How can you be a church that's not too religious? And the translation of that phrase is, I like this church because I can come here and not be any different than I am. I can live as I've always lived. The church respects who I am. Have you, have you heard that anywhere you go? You've got to respect people for what they are, respect people for whatever they do, whatever lifestyle they decide to live. That's fine. Respect them. So this church respects who I am and they're not trying to change me. You can fill up the church with those kinds of people. And I would ask, do we love those kinds of people? And yes, we do. Yes, we do. But we're never going to show them love by deceiving them into thinking they are right with God just as they are still in their sins. And they're right with God without repentance and faith and surrender to the Lordship of Christ. I mean, here's the truth of the whole matter. There is not one person that I am interested in holding their hand while I escort them into hell. I think this text shows us that real converts will stand discipline. They want discipline because they want to be like Christ. And Paul expected that those who had truly believed in Jesus Christ, this is what they want. They will ultimately invite discipline into their lives from the church because they want to be holy people. God called them to be holy people. Our sanctification, get it folks, our sanctification is just as real as our justification. And if we don't desire our sanctification, then we've not truly been converted. So when I teach this, I'm not overreaching. I'm not going beyond the principles of God's word. Even if there are no other churches in our area that would ever mention this, that doesn't matter. I'm not overreaching. Because we find discipline dyed into the fabric of the Lord's church. This is New Testament. This is the teaching of Jesus. It's the command of God. Now let's think just a little bit further on this. I want to uh, remind you that every Christian is commanded to be a part of the New Testament church. You you are to be a member of a good Bible-believing church, and you are to commit to that church and support the church, and you should desire to do that because you need accountability. Drifting Christians, Christians that aren't focused and committed to a congregation— that is concerned about them and watches over them, will soon find themselves out of God's will. You can't be in God's will without the church. Because the church very succinctly is taught in First Timothy to be the pillar and ground of the truth. And so there is no thought that any New Testament believer, there is no thought in any New Testament text, that any Christian would not be a member of the church. Now, if discipline then is taught in the New Testament, how are you to receive this discipline if you haven't placed yourself under a tangible New Testament authority? Now, I'll take just a moment to get into this. I'll talk a little bit about it, and then we'll save the rest for next week. I want to show you now that the church is the right place for discipline. This is where you will receive discipline in your Christian life. Now, God expects his people to be holy. He demands purity, and there are measures that must be taken to maintain this purity. Now, in the scriptures, preachers are taught to be preachers of holiness. The apostle Paul taught young preachers he was a mentor to the young preacher Timothy and this is how he instructed Timothy about what he should do in the church and this is second Timothy 4 verse 2 he says to him preach the word be instant in season out of season reprove rebuke exhort with all long suffering and doctrine now first Timothy is to guard the doctrines of God's word and as a preacher of the gospel He was to care for the welfare of the people. Paul says to him, Reprove them. That means to reprimand. He's told to rebuke them, which means to censure their disobedience. Now, when he saw them walking contrary to the commandments of God, then Paul says, You are to forcefully preach against their sin. Now, I'm sure you can understand... There has to be some teeth in the reprimands. Now, you can tell your children not to do something, but they like what they're doing, and they just may turn away from you and do the same thing again. And so what do you do? Well, you go tell them again. Don't do that. But unless you put teeth in that reprimand, if they know that you're not going to do anything about it, they'll not listen. They just go back and they do the same thing over and over. Well, likewise, a preacher of holiness and a church that wants purity must have a way to enforce the calls to holiness. And if people don't respond to it, then something needs to be done to awaken them from their sins and to shock them into doing the right thing. Now, the last stage of church discipline, which is disfellowship, is a place that we hope not to go. That's the last stage resort. This is what Paul mentions in this text of Second Thessalonians. Paul talked about the last stage, withdrawing fellowship from someone who is disorderly. Now, in disciplinary proceedings, we're given steps that prayerfully help us to avoid these shocking results of the last stage. Now, in Matthew 18, Jesus gave some steps for dealing with offenses against individuals. These can also be applied in the wider context of public offenses against the entire church. But I will mention this. It's not today. I'm not going to speak specifically on that scripture, but I don't believe that the steps that Jesus gave in Matthew 18 are mandatory for public offenses. They can be used for that, but they're not mandatory. Jesus said, though, the important point is that we are to bring these offenses before the church. So that shows that the church is God's authority on the earth to affect the discipline of his people. Now, it's remarkable that in Matthew, the church is mentioned only three times, and two of those times that it's mentioned, the subject is discipline. The church is central, and all efforts at discipline and restoration to holiness go right back to the body of Jesus Christ, which is the Lord's church. Now, in Matthew 18, the church was in its infancy. Christ had only recently called the 12 apostles and formed his church. And his first instructions when he mentioned the church was discipline. The church hadn't yet fully developed in all its organizational parts. Jesus Didn't deal with all the organizational parts, but what he did was to leave that to the later teachings of the New Testament, to men such as Paul, who gave us teachings about pastors and deacons and the work of the church, and included in that is more information about discipline. And this is what we read in uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians. But again in Matthew eighteen we find this primitive form of the church. It's not yet fully developed, and it's most interesting that the first teaching of the church was about its founder. That's Matthew sixteen, eighteen. We would expect that. That's fully we expect fully expect that. It, it, the teaching would be Jesus Christ founded his church. But who among us would expect that the second thing that Jesus would mention about the church was discipline? Well, if we know anything about the Scriptures, we would say, well, yeah, that, that pretty much follows. The next it would be discipline. The next it would be holiness because Christ was a church that is as he is. So you fully expect that Christ is going to deal with the issue of discipline. And that gives us a good indication of the priorities of the church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the head, and he is first, and then he wants that church to be as he is. The church is his body in the world, so it can't tolerate sin. Christ was incorruptible, the Holy One of God. Now, you can see that it is the church in Matthew uh, in its infancy. You find no hierarchical structure of the church there. In fact, you won't find that anywhere in the New Testament. There is no hierarchy in the church. There are no committees, there are no councils, there are no boards, there are no synods that are responsible for discipline. This is just the church. And who is the church? You and me. We're the members of the Lord's church, and we're the ones that are to handle discipline. We're the ones responsible to start the disciplinary process. Now, some time ago, I was asked if I would help to discipline A person in another church. Well, I can advise another church. I can help them, but I don't have any authority in another church. But when we become members of the church, and when you became members here, you automatically signed on to come under the authority of the church. And we agree together that we will live under that authority, under the authority of the leadership and by the direction of the scriptures, and by the consent of the membership, that we will be submissive and held accountable to this assembly. That's our responsibility, to hold each other accountable. We're to watch over the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We read that also a few minutes ago, that we're to restore those, look after the needs of others. When we see someone fall into sin... This is when we start the process of bringing them back to the Lord. Bringing them back so the church will be holy and God's blessings will be on us all. So the point I'm trying to make here is that the authority for this discipline is right here in this body. It's in this assembly. From here, there is no court of appeal. There is no place of higher authority than God's people Living in holiness and righteousness. The word of God says that we are qualified to judge in the matters of the local assembly. And you need to understand that. So when you become a member of the church, you're not free to just act as you please. To do anything that you want. No, you have agreed to church authority and to be held accountable for your actions to this body of believers. But as I say that, I hear some maybe in their own minds are thinking, no, 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 no. I don't want that. I don't want anybody watching me. I don't want anybody see what I do. I don't want anybody judging my life. And that's generally what you hear. You don't have a right to judge me when the Scriptures expressly give us that right to judge others. Now, we do it in love. We do it compassionately. We do it as we're supposed to. And... The only reason that you would think that I don't want anybody to examine my life is because I don't intend to do what's right. I wouldn't worry about this if I'm living as the Word of God tells me to live. So if you don't consent to that, you shouldn't have the privilege of being a part of the Lord's Church. So I think we've established this. The Lord's Church is the right place for discipline. When people are born again by the Spirit of God, they are commanded to be baptized. That's obeying the Lord's command, to be baptized. And when we are baptized, we enter into the fellowship of the church. And when a person does this, he becomes responsible to serve the Lord faithfully through the church and to live a life of holiness. So I want you to see that much today. Our salvation begins a lifelong process of sanctification. There is a lifelong process of conformity, a lifelong process of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, which will make us like him and therefore unashamed at his coming. We will live as we should live in the light of Christ's return. Well, this is what Paul is after with the Thessalonians. This is his desire. He commanded correction. He commanded the church to take the steps necessary to keep the church pure. Christ came to take our sins away. And as the apostle said, how that can we that are dead to sin and are dead in Christ, how can we live any longer in sin? The answer to this question, it's a rhetorical one. The answer is we can't not if we're truly born again. So what did Paul want out of all of this? Same thing the Lord wants. It's described in Ephesians 5, 27, a church that is glorious, without spot or wrinkle. A church that is holy and without blemish. Now, paying attention to sin and the church and purging it when we find it yields this glorious church that is well-pleasing to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is the reason that we insist upon church discipline. This is the way that we are conformed to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come again confessing our sins and realizing as we read the Word of God that we too often fall short of what we should be. We miss the mark so many times, yet we know that you are a loving and gracious God, that you are patient with us. And when we have this true desire that we want to be like you, that you help us with that, that your Holy Spirit is here to guide us, direct us. And then the way that you work effectually in our lives is through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters who care about us and concerned about how we live and whether we receive the blessings of God and we do this collectively we we do it none of us has authority over any other except as we are in the body Lord we thank you for again for Jesus Christ who saved us and sanctifies us and we just pray Lord what every day we would be conformed to your image thank you Lord for what we've heard from your word today Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.